Well, we're continuing today our series in, uh, in the book of Jonah. Um, we're in our second of five weeks that we're going to be looking at this book in the Old Testament. And as I mentioned a little bit last week, because of its familiarity as a, as a children's Bible story, it's, you know, it's one of the go-tos for children's Sunday school, uh, because of its familiarity, it's often a part of Scripture that we are susceptible to miss the depth of meaning in. We're prone to miss the, the relevance for our lives as adults in, because we just kind of associate this categorically as like a children's story in, in Scripture. Right, Jonah, as we learn about him, as we learned about him a little bit last week, he is a far cry from a hero. He's this unfaithful prophet who is running away from God. But what we started to see last week was that as Jonah runs away, there's someone else running in this story. There's God who is running after him. And we're meant to see God as the hero of this story. Right? God is the one who powerfully and redemptively invades and intervenes in order to rescue those people who are rebelling, who are running away from him. There's a novelist, a playwright, poet named D.H. Lawrence who once penned these words. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but it is a much more fearful thing to fall out of them. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a far more fearful thing to fall out of them. Okay, that is a difficult but really profound truth. And it's a truth that I think really plays itself out in the life and the story of Jonah, particularly the part that we're going to read about today in the second part of chapter 1. Because God is going to bring judgment against Jonah for his disobedience. And what we're going to see is that because God is God, he's the God of heaven, the one over the sea and dry land, to fall into the hands of this God, this living God, is a fearful thing. But for Jonah, well, for Jonah and for us, right, when God pursues his people, when he runs after those who are running away, that's not always a happy experience, Very often, it's far from a happy experience. But really, the the worst possible thing that God could do would be to abandon us to our flight, would be to abandon us to our own sinful pursuits, to let us just run away from him unchecked. So today, we're talking about the realm of God. And to to know God, to uh, relate with this God with whom we have to do, requires that we actively and attentively enter his realm. We step into his realm. His realm is this place where he rules and reigns. And what we see in Jonah and really throughout Scripture is that the realm of God is is everything and everywhere. In reality, there is no living outside of the realm of God's control and God's care. And that's a fearful thing, particularly when we find ourselves running, particularly for the one who rebels and runs. But it is a good thing. It is far better than to try to live in some other kind of realm and to try to distance yourself from or somehow reject uh, the realm of of God. So follow along with me uh, as I read the second half of Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 7 and read through uh, 17. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. 
Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is God's word. Let me uh, pray for us this morning. God, we pray that you would, just as we've already sought to enter into worship this morning, to perceive you as both the judge and the one who rescues us from that judgment, uh, I pray you would help us to see how you do that in Jonah's life and that we'd be able to also then perceive that in our own lives, our need for this and how you have fulfilled it for us. Uh, Thank you for for Scripture, uh, for your word, how you have revealed yourself to us that we might know who you are that we might actually uh, have some measure of real and genuine understanding of of you as our God. Work in our hearts uh, through your spirit this morning. We pray that in your name. Amen. To live life really is to live in the midst of a lot of tensions. Uh, For example, in, in relationships, it's destructive if you're a completely independent person. Okay, it's also destructive if you become a codependent person. Uh, In leadership, uh, authoritarianism is really crippling, but also no authority at all is equally crippling. Uh, A really helpful analogy I heard several years ago to to think about our life is that of a tennis racket. Think of life as a tennis racket. A tennis racket is made up of a series of strings, and there's tension in those strings. They're held tightly by this frame. But if and when those, the, the tension in those strings is calibrated correctly, what happens? It creates a sweet spot in the middle of the racket. So in relationships, isolation is bad, uh, codependence is bad, but these interdependent relationships with others is really critical to our health and to our thriving in life. In leadership, um, heavy-handed authoritarianism is destructive, uh, anarchy You know, no leadership, no uh, authority is destructive. But authority that serves the good of those underneath it is is what we all need in governments, in uh, organizations, in homes, churches, all kinds of places. Jonah chapter 1 introduces us to some of these tensions that exist in the realm of God. And here's the thing. uh, Because these tensions are complicated, And they're hard to comprehend. We will find ourselves at times just wanting to simplify this. And wanting to to just kind of box this into something that's a little bit easier to understand. To kind of give up the wrestling of these different aspects of who God is and what his realm is like. But to abandon the tension will actually ruin our understanding of God as he has revealed himself to be. And it will make us reductionistic in our thinking and in our practice in this life. 
So two key tensions that we'll spend our time talking about today from Jonah chapter 1. Two key tensions about the realm of God which we see play out in these words. One is that the realm of God is cosmic and personal. And the other is that the realm of God is characterized by judgment and mercy. Cosmic and personal, judgment and mercy. So first let's talk about how the realm of God is both cosmic and personal. Just to, just to catch us up to where we left off last week, um, Jonah is called by God to go to Nineveh to warn this big city of the Assyrian Empire uh, that their, their judgment is coming, that their impending judgment. Jonah goes as fast as possible in the opposite direction. Right? He gets on a ship and flees to Tarshish. Nineveh is 500 miles east. Tarshish is at the ends of the known earth to the west. So he goes as far as possible away from where he's called to go. But God begins running after him as he runs away. And the main way that God intervenes in Jonah's life is through this huge storm. Now you and I use uh, the word storm as a metaphor for hard hard situations and circumstances in our lives. It's kind of one of these words that we can use in in Christian circles that nobody else knows maybe exactly what we're talking about. Uh, It becomes kind of cliche insider language. I'm in the midst of a storm and people are looking around like, Maybe. I mean, I don't know. Do you, you got like a trick knee that tells you when that's coming? Or... But, in, but in Jonah's case, and here's what we can't miss, this isn't metaphorical, right? This is not a metaphorical storm. To miss that, I know that's obvious maybe, but to miss that is to miss something that's really significant. That God is creating and manipulating weather patterns as a part of his plan to pursue this running prophet. And ours is a culture that has largely become skeptical and dismissive of this. Once upon a time, uh, insurance contracts and and things of that nature would use the phrase acts of God to describe things that would happen that are outside of human control. Um, Now, almost always, you see them referred to as acts of nature or acts of chance or substitute some other kind of word in there. Uh, We call um, tornadoes and tsunamis and other kinds of uh, weather patterns like that, we call them natural disasters. Well, Jonah is actually, the book of Jonah is suggesting these are supernatural phenomena under the control and under the guidance of God. So the idea here is that the realm of God is cosmic. He controls the wind, he controls the waves of this storm. He controls also, as we see, the the massive creatures in the sea. He's about to make this large fish or whale, we're not exactly sure what kind of animal that is, into a submarine for Jonah. Right, Jonah's going to live inside this fish for three days and three nights. God also controls the lottery, right? so-called chance. The sailors decide to cast lots to figure out who's to blame for their, their impending death. Casting lots is this technique that was used in the ancient world to make important decisions. And, and it wasn't just something that like pagans did as, as an idolatrous practice. God's people used that all the time. And they used it not because it was a substitute or an alternate way to understand what God was leading or how God was leading. They used it because they confidently believed God controlled the outcome of the lots. Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So unsurprisingly, for every original hearer of this story, the lot falls to Jonah. Because all of creation, all of chance, so to speak, everything else is in the realm of God because all of that's in the realm of God. All of that becomes allied in God's pursuit of Jonah. 
But as we think about how cosmic that is, think about how at the same exact moment it's so incredibly personal. There, we don't know how many other people are affected by the storm. Certainly the, the sailors are. Uh, I would imagine with the size of the storm there were other boats or maybe people on shorelines that were affected by this storm as well. God is utilizing these cosmic means at his disposal in pursuit of this one individual. I've, I've read Jonah a number of times before in my life. Uh, what's really standing out to me this time as I've read it a handful of times preparing for this series and now in this series is how little of this story is devoted to the repentance of the Ninevites. Okay, we're not going to get there for a couple weeks, but this is a city of 120,000 wicked and rebellious people. They repent after like a seven-word sermon and are spared by God. It has to be one of the most massive and significant revival moments in the history of the world. And it gets five verses of one of the shortest books in the Old Testament. Right? It, it, as, as it's presented in the book of Jonah, it is merely, the, the repentance of 120,000 people is merely the stage upon which God displays his pursuit of one man. So much more of this text is focused on what God is doing to reveal and to, to break up the hardness of Jonah's heart. But though Jonah here is, is clearly the object of God's pursuit, the other players in this story are not throwaways. And they're not afterthoughts. And therein lies this tension that constantly exists between God's cosmic work and his personal work. God clearly cares about these other sailors. Why else does a Hebrew prophet show up on board a ship filled with pagans who had never heard about the God of heaven? And Jonah, as as we see him, he's probably the, the worst and most passive and most reluctant missionary ever to exist. Right? He is dragged out of bed and he introduces himself, and that's it. That's the extent of his missionary work on board this ship. But because God's realm is all-encompassing, even the disobedience of Jonah becomes an opportunity for God to become known by those who have not known. Through Jonah, really actually here it's in spite of Jonah, as God pursues him, he also is pursuing these sailors. He's revealing himself to these sailors as the God who controls everything the wind and the waves. And the last we read of these sailors in this text, they are responding to God in a far more faithful way than Jonah is. So the realm of God is cosmic and personal. And I would suggest this morning, there's a danger in doing away with or downplaying either one of those. Uh, You and I live in a hyper-individualistic culture. So most of the pressure that exists around us in our society, most of the pressure of our own self-centered natures will lead us to place ourself at the center. Right? That's the definition of being self-centered. We put ourselves at the center of the universe rather than seeing ourselves as just really a small part of the grand and cosmic work that God is doing. And this bleeds over all the time into our understanding and our practice of the Christian faith. Christianity particularly in the West, particularly in the United States, becomes hyper-individualistic. It's all about me and what I need and and my preferences and my styles and my opinions. Church really actually isn't that important. I I didn't get a chance to look at the the latest statistics on this, Um, but if you interview a handful of people on the street, it's a surprisingly low number of people that will say that church is really important to them in their relationship with Jesus. And and the ways that those questions get phrased sometimes, it's not like... You don't need the church for salvation. 
But then so quickly, then people in the hyper-individualistic culture just do away with it altogether. I don't even really need deep and personal relationships with others. It's just about me and Jesus. That's all I need. Then, though, there's a reaction to that which can be just as reductionistic and just as damaging. And the particular tribe or stream of Christianity in which most of us would call home or feel at home uh, is usually um, at risk of making this error as well. We might rightly seek to understand God as the cosmic creator, uh, as the one who does life in community with the Trinity and we do life in community with others. But maybe then we begin to miss or doubt or downplay the immensely personal and intimate nature of God's relationship with us. And let me just say this uh, this morning, because I am just confident there are many of you in the room that need to hear this. You are not just part of some kind of amorphous group of people. You are not just a cog in God's machine. Right? God loves you. And God is for you. And God delights in you. He sings over you. He is for you. He comes into this world for you. Not just for some generic, uh, nondescript group of people called Christians. He has come to purify a people for himself. That's what fights against the hyper-individualistic approach. But truly, you are part of that through the work of Jesus. So don't over-personalize the redemptive work of God, but don't underpersonalize it either. And a little while from now, because we do this every week, you get the chance to come to this table and you get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the server will look you in the eyes and he will say, the body of Christ for you and the blood of Christ for you. And my prayer for you this morning, particularly if you just have a hard time really experiencing that God is for you and loves you, that when the server says those words to you, that God would just use that moment to drive that truth deeply into your heart. This is for you. This is not just for a generic group of people, faceless and nameless. This is for you. In Psalm 8, the psalmist marvels at the the tension of this. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, right? All the cosmic work of God. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him, right? Let that be this sweet spot of our understanding of God. All right, God is the ruler of all. He's the creator of all, but he uses the cosmic means at his disposal in immensely personal ways. Okay, second. God is not just cosmic and personal. The other thing we see here in Jonah chapter 1 is that the realm of God is characterized by both judgment and mercy. When the the lots are cast and fall on Jonah, the sailors realize really what Jonah has already known all along. Uh, This storm is an act of God's judgment against Jonah's disobedience. And the sailors rattle off these Four questions in rapid succession. And then, really, for the first time in the entire narrative, we hear Jonah speak. He's been silent up to this point. We finally hear Jonah talk. What's the first words out of his mouth? I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, if if we were to, to isolate that from the story that's unfolding around him, 
Jonah would look like he's killing it here as a prophet of God. That's a great answer. It's the first thing that he says. But actually, because we know better, because we see what his life is actually looking like in this moment, it just serves to highlight how much he is living in rejection of his own identity and rejection of his own beliefs. He's fleeing across the sea from the God he believes made that sea. Do you you ever have the right answer for how you're supposed to live your life or what you're supposed to do in a given moment, but your life looks absolutely nothing like that? I think all of us would say that we do that, probably regularly. That's Jonah here. And his rejection and his running are really the reasons God is going to bring this judgment. Among the images we have um, painted for us in Scripture of who God is, we see God as creator, we see he is father, we also see that God is judge. And he is the judge over everything in his realm. Sin, or, or rebellion against God, is first and foremost an offense against God himself. And that's because it's, it's, a, it's a violation, it's a corruption of the goodness with which God created everything. And because of the pervasiveness of sin, God being judged, God has a lot of judging to do. Right? The pervasiveness of sin means God is judged. He's going to be busy in that work. Because sin affects everything. It affects every aspect of our lives. It also affects every aspect of God's created order. Right? Again, we call things natural disasters. In reality, there is no more unnatural intrusion when compared to God's beautiful and perfect creation as we see it in the first couple chapters in Genesis. Now, does that mean that every flood and every tornado and every wildfire is God's judgment against sin. I think to be faithful to Scripture, we have to say yes and then qualify it and nuance it. On the one hand, what we read in Jonah is the exception, right? That God brings a huge storm as a direct act of judgment against one person's sin. I think that's the exception, not the rule. And there are a lot of tragic examples among Christians, among Christian leaders, who blame terrorist actions like September 11th or blame catastrophes like Hurricane Katrina on a particular group of people, on a particular subset of people, perhaps even a particular group of people that sin in one particular way. So can we together just own, in a small way, uh, some of that this morning? Uh, As Christians, it is abhorrent what we have done to the LGBT community when it comes to this idea right here. It is abhorrent what we have done to the LGBT community. It's as though we have this image of God as one who overlooks and forgives massive amounts of pride and lovelessness and envy and anger and neglect of caring for the poor and the marginalized. All those are, in our minds, acceptable ways to rebel against God. But if someone has a homosexual orientation or wrestles with questions of gender identity, that's, like in our perspective, that's just too much. Okay, now God's mad, and now the lightning bolt's going to come. Okay, that is not, that is not, I'll say it this way, we need not look for someone or a group of people to blame every time we see a disaster play out in the world. At the same time, disasters are a way, one way, which God does bring judgment against sin. They are instruments of God to remind us that sin is this unnatural intrusion into his creation. And disasters, be they storms or accidents or terrorist attacks, should always drive each one of us to our own repentance. 
In Luke chapter 13, people asked Jesus about these 18 people that were killed when a tower of Siloam, the tower of Siloam, fell on them. And Jesus asked them, he asked the people who were listening to him as he teaches them, do you think those 18 people were worse than you? Do you think they were worse than you are? And he says, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, disasters and calamities, the the evil that comes upon us, as the sailors put it in verse 7, they remind us that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. They remind us that sin is primarily an offense against God. And they remind us that God is not content to let that go unchecked, but he's going to act as judge to bring and restore justice to his created order. But God's realm is not just characterized by judgment. It's also characterized by mercy. And what we see here in Jonah is God spare the life of those who are caught in this storm. Both the rebellious prophet, the one he's bringing the storm against specifically, and all of the pagan sailors. Okay, and we probably don't pay much attention to this because in our mind we've been thinking for, for centuries now that God is the God of all people and wants to redeem and rescue all people. This would stand out hugely in the mind of the original audience. God's heart for non-Jewish people. Like the original audience, what do they care if a handful of sailors who worship idols pass, you know, die in a, in a storm? What do they care? They're pagans, they deserve to die. This is revolutionary in its time. He's got this crazy juxtaposition that comes out from the, from the very beginning of this text. You've got a prophet who quickly becomes the villain of the story, and you've got a group of polytheistic, idol-worshiping sailors who are far more righteous and more moral than the prophet is. Right? And they serve at, as God's messenger to Jonah more than Jonah serves as God's messenger to them. Right? They're the ones that tell him to wake up. They're the ones that ask him the questions to get him to, to speak his identity out loud. They do everything in their power not to throw him overboard, even when Jonah tells them to do exactly that. And in line with what we read in the Hebrew Psalms, it's the pagan sailors who acknowledge God as the one who does whatever he pleases. It's almost like they're reciting Psalms as they say that. And what we see then is that God is merciful to them. The sea ceases from its raging. But more than that, God has just used this really violent and traumatic experience to open their hearts to him. And there's a progression, and perhaps you heard it as we read it together this morning, there's a progression of the word fear in this text. The sailors are exceedingly afraid when they find out that Jonah worships the God of heaven, the one who controls the sea. They're terrified at God's power to judge using nature. But as they are spared from the storm, as we get down to verse 16, it says that they fear the Lord exceedingly. And what that means is that they've moved from terror at God's power to judge to a reverent gratitude at God's power to save. They're worshiping when we leave them in this story. They are worshiping God. They are sacrificing and making vows to God. So God does not just care about Israel. He cares about all the peoples of the earth. And he shows mercy to all the peoples of the earth. God is merciful to to Jonah, too. What is Jonah thinking? What is going through his mind when he tells this group of sailors to throw him overboard? Maybe he's being selfless. Maybe he's taking one for the team. 
You know, he's recognizing, okay, this judgment is, is, is against me. God's bringing this against me. Let me just uh, take one for the team, kind of be the hero, at least go out on a high note. Maybe that's what he's doing. I'm not convinced that's what he's doing actually at all. Given Jonah's disposition leading up to this, and when we see him later in chapter 4, asking God to kill him not once but twice because he just can't tolerate God's compassion for the Ninevites, I think that this smells a little bit more like escapism than it does heroism on Jonah's part. He, He might have come to see that he can't run and flee from God. He might recognize, okay, I deserve judgment because I'm disobeying God. But maybe in Jonah's mind, death in a grand and final way will afford him the opportunity to escape from the God he's been seeking to escape. Though it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God, it is a much more fearful thing to fall out of them. And so God intervenes again. He won't let Jonah go, but this time when he intervenes, he intervenes not with judgment, but with mercy. And he rescues Jonah from drowning by appointing this great fish to swallow him up, to keep him in his belly for three days and three nights. And we'll look more at that as we come back next week. So here in these few verses we see both the the judgment and the mercy of God at work. And what we see at the end of the day is that the power of God, the all-encompassing scope of the realm of God, it gets displayed through both of these things. God's power is displayed both in His judgment and in His mercy. This week, excuse me, in my home meeting, uh, we had a great discussion that that kind of branched off of, of exactly this. And the discussion was this, as we talk about our own proclivity to run from God and how we know other people in our lives that are running from God and want nothing to do with God at this moment, how do we pray for them? Like, how do we pray that God shows up and intervenes in their lives? And as we talked about it, well, sometimes, and some of us are more bent toward one of these things, and some of us are more bent toward the other, sometimes we pray that God would use his power to bring somebody to the end of themselves, Right, that they would hit some kind of rock bottom. They would shipwreck their lives, maybe in some small way. Uh, maybe that's how we pray for them. Uh, something that would stop them pursuing whatever they're pursuing, be that drugs or alcohol or promiscuity or uh, depend- being just saturated by money and greed and power or independence, whatever it might be. That they would experience, really what we're praying for there is that they would experience some of God's judgment and that it would cause them to wake up and to turn back. Other times we might pray that God cares for these, this person who's running in such a, an overwhelming way, such a tangible way that it woos that person into his kingdom. Right? That God just overwhelmingly displays his mercy in that person's life to the degree that they just can't do anything but say, all right, I'm in, I'm in. And I think we see God's power displayed in both of these ways in the story of Jonah. Right? God brings judgment against a disobedient prophet But God is also merciful, and he spares the sailors, he spares the prophet himself. And through both judgment and mercy, God draws these pagans to worship him, and he pursues and preserves the life of a sheep who has gone astray. And this is one of the hardest tensions for us to understand, that the realm of God is a realm characterized by both judgment and mercy. And in our modern sensibilities, we are likely to really appreciate the mercy 
and to really balk at or react strongly against, against the judgment. Though it will be impossible, really, really, really difficult to try to comprehend even some small measure of this, that God can be both just and merciful. It will be reductionistic. It will betray our understanding of God as he has revealed himself and his nature and character to get rid of one of these things in favor of the other. And this sweet spot is found by simultaneously seeing God as the perfect judge and the one who offers perfect mercy. Why can't we look at the book of Jonah and just talk about God's mercy and God's rescue of Jonah? He does rescue Jonah, after all, does he not? But the question I think that we have to ask at the same time is, what does God rescue Jonah from? He rescues him from this huge storm. A storm, according to verse 4, which was hurled upon the sea, not by Satan, not by Mother Nature, not by chance, not just because that's the way things work, but hurled upon the sea by God himself. Right? God actively brings his judgment so that he might actively bring his mercy. God rescues Jonah from his own judgment against him. And if there's something familiar, if that sounds familiar for some reason to you, that's because this is the story of the world. And it's the story of God's redemption through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is such a foundational part of why the good news of the gospel is actually good news. There's a judgment from God over every single one of us because of our sin. Right? We're told that all of us have sinned, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. God's judgment against sin means that God will judge us in that sin. And that is a burden that we cannot carry. That is a debt that we cannot possibly repay. And so in his mercy, God must take the initiative to rescue us from his own judgment against us. To just ignore that sin. As you heard Bob mention this earlier, to just kind of sweep that under the rug or pretend that it doesn't exist means that God would not be just. But to leave us in our sin would mean that God would not be merciful. But to invade this world, to invade our own souls through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus means that the judgment of that sin falls on him so that the mercy of God might fall on us. Right? Praise God, we can look and we can rejoice and we can celebrate that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, friends, may we live in the sweet spot of God's judgment and mercy because truly that is where our salvation is found. In the cross of Jesus where the perfect judgment of God meets the perfect mercy of God and is our freedom and is our life. And may we fall into the hands of the living God. Because in the hands of God, not only will he discipline us, not only will he pursue us in judgment, but he will deliver us from that judgment by becoming our perfect means of mercy. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we confess It is easier to our ears to only think of you as merciful and to forget your judgment against sin. Or maybe it's even easier for us to only hear about your judgment against sin because we know we deserve it, but but we struggle actually believing the mercy for us. I, I pray that you would, this morning, 
Show us that you are a God of both judgment and mercy. Show us that you are a God who both is cosmic over everything, and that we are not at the center, but that you love us immensely and personally and intimately, and you relate to us in those ways. I pray, Jesus, that as we come to know you as the God with whom we have to do, I pray that we would not reduce you to something that's easier to understand, that we would not do away with whatever is hard for us to understand or whatever we don't like, that we would live in the tensions of these things. And more than anything, that we would see the perfect union of mercy and justice found on the cross of Jesus, that we need both your mercy and your justice to be true. And Jesus is the only answer to that that is our hope. So as we come and we celebrate that at this table this morning, um, meet with us, strengthen our weak and feeble and fickle hearts. I pray this in your name. Amen.